0: Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this talk sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new here, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online MA degrees and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you are at all interested in learning more about us, please feel welcome to speak to one of our staff members after the lecture or visit us at iwp.edu. Additionally, to support the work of IWP, please visit iwp.edu backslash donate. Today we'll be hearing from Ambassador Morris H. Tan, who will deliver a lecture entitled, Pursuing Justice Worldwide. Ambassador Tan served as the first Asian American ambassador at large in U.S. history. A unique unique position in the world history, the ambassador pursued preventative, mitigating, and accountability-seeking justice throughout the world for mass atrocity crimes, such as genocide, war crimes, and other crimes against humanity. Being in the top policy position within the entire U.S. government for this area, Ambassador Tan advanced this mission in places such as Rwanda, Kosovo, Syria, Burma, China, Iraq, Guatemala, Sri Lanka, Nagorno-Karabakh, North Korea, Sudan, Lebanon, and El Salvador. The foremost legal scholar on North Korea, Ambassador Tan published, quote, North Korea, International Law and the Dual Crises at Routledge, and more law review articles on this subject than any other scholar. Named Korean American of the Year and an emerging leader by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, he has participated in a range of media engagements such as the National Law Journal and the United States United Press International. Excuse me. Ambassador Tan has also worked in legal academia for close to two decades, with his journey beginning as a founding faculty member at the first American Juris Doctorate program in Asia, Handong International Law School. Ambassador Tan has served as a visiting scholar at the Northwestern University's Pritzker School of Law and the University of Texas Law School. He has also served as a professor of law at Northern Illinois University College of Law and currently serves as as dean at Liberty University's School of Law.
1: With that, please welcome Ambassador Tan. <laughs> It's good to be here with you today. Um, I'm here at the invitation of President Vosh of this uh, fine graduate institution here uh, that focuses on statecraft in various ways, intelligence, uh, military related things, diplomacy, and the like. Uh, We know each other through the Council for American Ambassadors, which is an organization for non-career ambassadors. I get asked um, a bunch of times, How do you become an ambassador? I'm not sure if I'm the best example in terms of that. Um, The two most common ways have nothing to do with me. Number one, financially support whoever wins the White House. Number two, be a career person in the State Department and rise up the ranks uh, to ambassador. Um, Those are the two primary ways that people end up in ambassadorships in my instance, it uh, it was none of the above. I had a nice goose egg next to all my political contributions that I'd ever given, not only myself, but everyone in my family, um, because they have a form that you fill out to disclose such things. Um, and I had not worked one day in the U.S. State Department. And so um, so uh, there was there were a group of people working for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee who kind of stared at me mystified and said, how did you get here? Um, Given that I didn't follow either of those most common paths, I'd like to think that has something to do with um, the expertise that was developed over time in the areas of international criminal law, international human rights, um, things that were pertinent actually to doing the job uh, to which I was called Um, There is so much I could share about uh, what happened during my watch, uh, during my time in the ambassadorship. Uh, I'll see if I can hit a number of them uh, during the time here. I'll try to leave some time available for questions at the end as well, but um, I have many things that uh, I'd like to share with you if, if I can manage it. I entered the position and I learned from the team that I inherited in the Office of Global Criminal Justice that they were trying to get the public visa sanction against Chavendra Silva, who was the head of the army in the country of Sri Lanka. They had been trying for the better part of a year to get this across the finish line, but uh, due to resistance and delays of various kinds, uh, that did not happen we had one terabyte worth of evidence. In fact, actually over one terabyte worth of evidence of uh, war crimes that were committed in the course of the 26 year civil war in Sri Lanka. And maybe because I didn't know better, uh, I just jumped right in (laughs) and uh, tried to get that across the finish line. And indeed, was able to get that across the finish line within my first two weeks on the job. And my predecessor, Ambassador Rapp, who who was the immediate past presidentially appointed Senate confirmed ambassador in my position, he has called it, without any prompting from me, the greatest step towards justice for Sri Lanka. I had learned that when he went to Sri Lanka, the Sri Lankan media, much influenced by the government, was basically demonized him and said uh, all manner of uh, things about him and, and um, felt very threatened that the ambassador at large for global criminal justice would be stepping foot in that country. What does this mean? It means that Shivendra Silva and his family are not allowed to come to the United States. No trips to Disney World, no academic conferences, no government trips, he is barred from doing so. What made this hard? One of the things that made it hard is here is the person who's the head of the army of the country. And in the situation of Sri Lanka, what our research had found is that those who were most responsible for the most mass atrocity crimes in Sri Lanka, held the most prominent positions in the government and in the military of that country. That makes it sensitive. That makes it difficult. That makes it so that, um, so that there are other aspects of perhaps diplomacy and access that there is fear that those things will be cut off if you engage in such a thing. And so notwithstanding that and notwithstanding some of the challenges that were there, uh, it actually happened and got across the finish line after two weeks. That was not the last thing I did relating to Sri Lanka. There was another instance where the question was, are they going to get military equipment and know-how, including kinetic things that could be used or not? Or, uh, were they going to get human rights training? Or both? I pushed pretty hard that they would not get the kinetic military aid, but that they would get the human rights training. And that is in fact what happened. Um, I, even though I was not the only one uh, giving input along those lines. Sri Lanka is was Uh, one place, um, but there were many other places that uh, I had an opportunity to try to make a difference in. And I will see if I can uh, share a number of other examples along these lines. Uh, If I were to turn uh, to Burma, Burma had suffered from military rule for quite a while. And there were mass atrocities that were committed The Secretary of State before the one under which I served called it ethnic cleansing, what happened against the Rohingya uh, in Burma and others uh, inside of Burma the Chin, the Kachin, there were others as well who were impacted negatively by the Burmese military. They had a uh, a mechanism, the double I, double M which was seeking to gather evidence. This is very important to lay the foundation for future prosecution. They were gathering evidence and organizing evidence to be used potentially in future prosecution. And so we were strongly supportive of the double I uh, was in communication with the top leadership of there as well as others who worked on that. And the U.S. government was giving a huge sum of money to support the refugees in places like Cox's Bazaar across the border in neighboring Bangladesh. And there were certain uh, sanctions that were levied against certain military leaders in Burma. But I really wanted to get mass atrocity determinations. And uh, this was... This carries a lot of weight because the US government rarely does them. And when they do them, they're usually based on a lot of the evidence, and they're often highly regarded and influential, impactful around the world. Uh, the person who held my position in interim capacity um, before Ambassador Buckwald had sent me his, uh, his monograph on this subject which uh, I found very helpful and I read in its entirety before starting my work. However, there was a leak that happened in the Washington Post. And the word around the department was that this leak had soured the willingness to move forward with a mass atrocity determination in regards to Burma. There are others who said otherwise, and there are those who said that um, that was not the reason why it was not moving forward. But there were other reasons and there were other factors, but frankly, despite my best efforts, and I could not do it unilaterally, even though I was uh, in charge of the main policy shop, as they called it, for the department, unfortunately, I was not able to get that across the finish line uh, during my time I have talked with those uh, in various capacities subsequent to my time, wishing that it would yet get across the finish line uh, even after my time. It was greatly disappointing to me when shortly after my time, there was a military coup in Burma and the military took over the civilian government once again and there had been ongoing reports of other mass atrocities. There was a recent acknowledgement of the two-year anniversary of the military coup that happened in Burma. And I wonder, one cannot know because it's a counterfactual, I wonder if it would have been a deterrent to the military coup had there been a mass atrocity determination against Burma that had gotten across the finish line. And when I saw the coup that took place a little more than two years ago, I was devastated. And I so wished that the mass atrocity determination had gotten across the finish line. Uh, Notwithstanding my best efforts, it did not happen. I sometimes would use sort of a baseball analogy in regards to how often I was able to get something across the finish line in in this space. The reason I use the baseball analogy is that if you're batting 300, you're a really good batter in the major leagues. Frankly, most of the things I tried to do didn't happen. I say that to give you a realistic view. I don't want to give the impression with other things I'm gonna share too. I don't want you to gain the false impression Oh, that if you're in a position like this, whatever you do, you snap your finger, it's, it happens. The thing that happened two weeks in with Sri Lanka, that it doesn't always happen like that, right? Um, frequently, there are a whole array of things that are at play in, and a lot of times there's a, not only an internal process within the State Department, but there's also intergovernmental uh, equities um, across departments. And so so it is not a simple, usually, or easy thing uh, many times. And even more so in some respects in this space. Why? Because when you are trying to pursue justice for mass uh, atrocity crimes, you know, there can be a concern. Are the people who are in the crosshairs of this are they gonna cooperate with the US government in other ways, or if they're part of the government, will will this get me disinvited uh, from the dinner party, ask the people in in our embassy, say, for example. Uh, And so uh, it's a very sensitive thing to charge genocide, (laughs) crimes against humanity, war crimes. These are really serious things that countries often are very sensitive about and don't wanna hear and don't wanna be held accountable for, right? Not to mention the fact that those who commit such things often do all sorts of things to try to keep there from being justice done. I'll switch to another example, that of the Rwandan genocide. As you may know, in Rwanda, in the course of about a year, there were around a million people who were exterminated in the Rwandan genocide. As ambassador-at-large for global criminal justice, I oversaw the War Crimes Rewards Program. And the number one target on my list for the War Crimes Rewards Program was Felician Kabuga. Felician Kabuga was the chief financier and one of the primary inciters of the Rwandan genocide. Purchasing all sorts of weapons that were used. These were low-tech weapons. Uh, We're talking about things like sharpened sticks and clubs and other such crude weaponry that were used to literally bludgeon people to death all over that small country. Note, we're talking about a country roughly with a seven million people uh, in it. And to have around a million of them perish in about a year is just catastrophic. I was in the Swiss embassy to the US and when I was there, the Swiss ambassador said, thank you, I had Felician Kabuga, in my custody over 26 years ago, and I lost him in Kenya. And I cannot forgive myself for that. Thank you for what your office did to effectuate his capture. He was captured in a suburb outside of Paris, France, on my watch. And... If you see, for example, uh, a documentary put out by Netflix called The World's Most Wanted, it gives you a bit of a sense of how slippery and elusive Kubuga was. Two of my predecessors are interviewed at length, uh, Ambassadors Prosper and Ambassador Rap. And he was in a number of different countries. There were a number of near misses. They almost caught him here. They almost caught him there. There was an informant who was uh, assassinated. There were all sorts of things that happened to keep him from being captured and brought to justice for over 26 years. The War Crimes Rewards Program offered rewards up to $5 million for tips that would lead to the rest of the people who are on that list. And Felicium Kabuga was top foremost among them. I had a chance, I think about Vosch was there too, to thank the French ambassador for what the French did, uh, because it was the French gendarmerie who swooped in and captured Kabuga, who is standing trial, as we speak, in The Hague, in the Netherlands. Another example I will give you is uh, Lebanon. There was a special tribunal for Lebanon for which our government was giving $10 million a year. This tribunal was set up in connection with the terrorist attack that killed the prime minister of Lebanon, uh, Rafiq Hariri, and others who were killed uh, in that attack. And on my watch, Ayash, who was the principal defendant of the special tribunal for Lebanon was convicted. It was a rather eventful time for Lebanon because just before the announcement of IOSH's conviction, there was that massive explosion in the country. And now the Lebanese economy is in free fall. Their their currency has been devalued 98% of uh, what it was before. And it has been called one of the worst economic freefalls uh, in recent history. But, the Special Tribune for Lebanon did get uh, its chief defendant and uh, convicted. During that time, the opinion is lengthy, um, something like 1,400 to 1,700, depending, I guess, on how the pages are set, uh, pages in length, and a lot of investment by the US government and. Finally, the chief defendant uh, of uh, of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon was convicted. Did you know that there is no immunity, even for a head of state, in regards to mass atrocity crimes? That was true also during my time as well. And the immediate past president of Kosovo, was indicted in the Kosovo specialist chambers. You may or may not know, but the former Yugoslavia, there has been more work done for uh, seeking justice and accountability for that war than probably any other situation uh, that has happened around the world. And when he was indicted, we had, The chief prosecutor for the Kosovo Specialist Chambers is an American who was seconded from the Department of Justice to the Kosovo Specialist Chambers. And he was confident that he had more than enough evidence beyond a reasonable doubt for all 10 counts in regards to the president of Kosovo. Upon his indictment, he stepped down immediately. And that was the end of his presidency. He is currently in custody, he is currently uh, on trial. Uh, And that is moving forward. I talked with people, I've talked with uh, an ambassador from Kosovo and various other people, uh, people from Serbia as well. Um, And one of the things that's really remarkable about what has happened in that region is the amount of propaganda and revisionist history that has gone on. In regards to it, I was talking to a number of prosecutors from that region, and they were telling me about how extensively um, a lot of their history books would try to whitewash or change or deny the mass atrocity crimes uh, that took place. I think uh, that a couple things I'll mention along these lines. Number one, when mass atrocity crimes take place, often they are surrounded by a convoy of lies. That's frankly the norm. Uh, Number two, this is deeply embarrassing for countries, right? And so they try many times to engage in revisionist history to try to prevent uh, this embarrassment uh, from being there. And so that is something that I definitely saw in my interactions. In that region and in that part of the world, another uh, court that was set up uh, by one of my predecessors, the extraordinary courts in the uh, extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia, the ECCC, uh, was wrapping up around uh, during the time of my ambassadorship. And one of the key things that we were trying to do at that point, since it was wrapping up was to preserve the evidence and preserve the archives for posterity, to try to help there to be accurate history that could continue to uh, recall the 1.6 million Cambodians who died under the reign of terror of the Khmer Rouge, Pol Pot and company uh, holding sway over (coughs) over that country. Another place that I was actively involved in was Syria. Um, There was an act that was passed by Congress named for somebody who was uh, codenamed Caesar. Uh, He's codenamed because he was a government photographer who had over 50,000 photographs that gave evidence of atrocity crimes taking place inside of Syria. And so he needed a code name and um, I will not forget him sitting in my office telling me about his work, the risk it took. Obviously he's fled from the country. He sought refuge here in this country. Um, But there are horrific things that have been happening in Syria. And there uh, there is a commission that is seeking to do some uh, work there that I was assuring of my full support. Um, And there was also an evidence gathering mechanism like the one in Burma. In this case, uh, the IIIM to use the acronym uh, that is there that was gathering and organizing evidence for potential future prosecution. There were prosecutions that were happening in various countries that we were supporting. For example, uh, there was a conviction in Koblenz, Germany, and there were prosecutions going on in countries like Spain and Sweden and others as well. And, and, you know, the conflict was ongoing even as we were in the midst of it, but we were able to support and help there to be some domestic prosecutions and some convictions uh, that took place uh, during that time. I was asked during my confirmation hearing about a particular ISIS cell known as the Beatles. They were called the Beatles. It's not an entomological reference. It's a reference to the British band, famous British band, uh, because this was a British ISIS cell. And so they were called the Beatles. And one of the senators in my confirmation hearing specifically asked about that. And so... Um, There has been prosecution uh, of these Beatles uh, in U.S. federal court. It was a process by which it ended up in U.S. federal court, but I think it was probably the best among the different options uh, that were being considered in terms of where that prosecution uh, should take place. And so... um, Uh, what was committed to in the confirmation hearing was followed through on uh, during my time of actual service. In Iraq, UNITAD uh, was trying to gather and also organize evidence for use in prosecutions. There had been a prior mass atrocity determination that happened in connection with Iraq. And so there were ongoing uh, efforts through UNITAD Uh, in gathering evidence and uh, moving forward along these lines. I'll give you another example of an active conflict that I ended up uh, getting involved in. Has anyone here ever heard of Nagorno-Karabakh? Does that name, does that region, uh, name name of that region ring a bell? I see heads shaking no and neither did I going into the ambassadorship. I'd never heard of Nagorno-Karabakh. But there was a conflict going on there where the Azerbaijani were attacking this region that was over 90% Armenian. And this is also in the historic backdrop of the Armenian genocide, which by the way I was advocating for there to be a full-throated recognition of the Armenian genocide that happened previously. This is not something that the Turkish government wants, right? So there'd been a lot of dancing around that, but there were more and more explicit statements commemorating and denouncing the atrocities that occurred in the Armenian de- Genocide. And then finally, uh, after my time, there was uh, recognition by the US government of the Armenian Genocide publicly um, by the President of the United States. Uh, and you know the, the successor to the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, right? Uh, did not want that recognition. So that's the backdrop. You have the Azerbaijani supported by the Turkish coming in and attacking uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. And as the conflict was raging, I had an opportunity to uh, address virtually a major press conference in which I sternly denounced the aggression as well as the war crimes that were being committed and uh, was threatening potential repercussions if they did not desist from doing so. Um, Even at that press conference, my words received, (laughs) had a pretty strong reaction. Um, I I still remember uh, there were people who were like yelling after my talk and were like, you don't understand, you don't, and you know, and my deputy was saying, "Get off the line! Get offline!" <laughs> and so I did. Um, but what was neat to see is that a ceasefire ensued the following week. Um, I don't want to take too much credit uh, for that, and one doesn't always know causality, correlation, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so I, I want to be careful not to presume or or assume um, more causality or more credit for what I did but I'm glad I at least was able to try to do my part uh, in trying to address that situation uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh. I had to get a flurry of intel uh, briefings to bring me up to speed on what in the world was going on in this place called Nagorno-Karabakh. There um, is a country in Africa that I elevated from uh, I elevated to a tier one, a top tier priority, and that is the country of Nigeria. There are a huge number of atrocities that have taken place and are taking place in the largest country uh, in Africa. Uh, by population, it is projected to enter the, is expected to become the third largest country by population in the world uh, in the not too distant future. And uh, I was in a high level binational meeting um, inside the US State Department. Uh, to my right were Pentagon uh, leadership, to my left were uh, various people from the US State Department. On the other side of the table, were all the top military brass of Nigeria as well as their national security advisor and people like that. And I remember uh, in the midst of that meeting, um, the Nigerians were wanting more weaponry uh, from the U.S. But in the midst of that meeting, um, I denounced in pretty unequivocal terms the mass atrocity crimes that were going on inside of Nigeria. I think everyone in the room was stunned, (laughs) the US side, as well as the Nigerians, that I would so forthrightly um, call out these mass atrocity crimes going on in Nigeria. And I remember as soon as I finished speaking, the meeting abruptly stopped and adjourned. (laughs) And um, uh, and there was a certain tension (laughs) and intensity in the room as I was sharing it, but I don't regret doing so. Knowing what I knew then, even more so knowing what I know now in addition to what I knew then, I don't regret um, calling out these mass atrocity crimes to those who who were in a position to do more about it. There is corruption in the Nigerian government, military, courts, among the legal profession, there's all sorts of corruption that makes it so that there, those who are culpable of mass atrocity crimes are not brought to justice within Nigeria. Uh, and so uh, so it was something that I thought was incumbent upon me to do uh, to do so. Later on, when there was a high level delegation going to Nigeria, I was told that I should not go because because my very title was too inflammatory, uh, too provocative. They went there and the government played this uh, game where they were denying everything. And I wish I was included on that trip. I think I would have had some things to add to that trip. Uh, but I was not allowed to go. I did have the chance to address Congress through the Lantos Commission. And uh, in that talk as well, in very strong terms, I denounced the mass atrocity crimes going on uh, in Nigeria. Something, and again, uh, one cannot always know for sure causality or correlation. you know, if I'm not careful, it might be easy to engage in post-hoc fallacy <laughs> in terms of this followed that, therefore the, what followed was caused by what was before. Um, and again, I don't want to necessarily give uh, give uh, too much credit to what we did before Congress, the Land Commission, but maybe, and there are others who think that there was causality, that was uh, a major factor in hundreds of Nigerian junior high school boys who had been kidnapped being returned to their families later that same day. And so the U.S. holds a lot of weight. It's the most powerful country in the world, the wealthiest country in the world, the most influential country in the world. Um, and, And so for this office to be housed inside the U.S. government perhaps enables it to do more than uh, it would be located in the government of any other country, it doesn't exist anywhere else. Did you know that this ambassadorship doesn't exist in any other foreign ministry in any other country in the world presently or all time beforehand? This is something that is, in my view, a unique contribution that the US has made uh, and is a testimony, testimony to, the, uh, to the goodness and the greatness of this country that it even exists and that even operates and does what it does. I had a situation that I was dealing with that, um, that was uh, very sensitive as well and it was the matter of the International Criminal Court and I'll lay some background in regards to what I was walking into. The International Criminal Court was actually, uh, the architect of it was my original predecessor in my office. He's the one who who was the primary US representative who negotiated the constitutive treaty that formed, uh, formed the International Criminal Court. If you look at the purposes enunciated by the International Criminal Court, they dovetail with the areas that the office I led was seeking to address, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity. What was the track record of the ICC? Track record while there was something like four convictions in 20 years, about $2 billion spent, and two of those, uh, convictions were enabled by the U.S. turning over those two, half the defendants that were convicted. What's the U.S. history and record in terms of justice around the world? It's far more than that, I can assure you. And it would take a long time, actually, to communicate all the ways that the U.S. has led in pursuing justice for mass atrocity crimes around the world, whether it's the Nuremberg trials after World War II and the Tokyo trials after World War II, or whether it's a whole series of ways. And many of the things have happened through the Office of Global Criminal Justice, but also outside of the Office of Global Criminal Justice as well. So, when I got in, the situation in regards to Afghanistan was raised. And it was said that uh, the office of the prosecutor of the international criminal court was wanting to go after American military and intelligence personnel as part of the situation in Afghanistan. Well, in actuality, the U S had already dealt with this situation. We even had Senate hearings and uh, various uh, court proceedings that happened. And indeed, the results of those things were public. And indeed, the results of those things that were public were the primary sources that the International Criminal Court itself was relying upon. And yet, the International Criminal Court has a standard known as complementarity. It means that It only steps in when a country is unwilling or unable to move forward domestically. The U.S. had already moved forward in all sorts of ways domestically. And therefore, it was violating its own standard of complementarity to go after, potentially go after American personnel. Furthermore, they were failing their own standard of gravity. Even if you took all the allegations against U.S. personnel aggregated them together, assumed all of them were true. It could not possibly rise to the level of gravity that is one of the threshold criteria before the ICC is to move forward on anything. Anyone who knows about the mass atrocities committed in Afghanistan know that the Taliban was the primary source of mass atrocity crimes in the situation in Afghanistan. And there was no way that even if you assumed guilt for all the things that they were claiming in regards to American personnel, we're talking about maybe 70 things, which is small when you're talking about mass atrocity crimes. We're talking about mass atrocity crimes. So it failed the gravity uh, test uh, as well. In addition, there, was, uh, there were good reasons to believe that this was politicized and politically motivated, both in terms of the timing uh, of what was going on and who they were going after potentially and things along those lines. Um, I will not go into detail in terms of uh, concerns about corruption that were there as well. But suffice it to say, the more I looked into it, the more I saw that this was not advancing justice, but this was actually going to be a deterrent for the US to be a force for justice moving forward. The Goldstone Commission, uh, Justice Goldstone, uh, was leading a commission that was seeking to reform the International Criminal Court And as I read his report, a lot of things that I was saying about the International Criminal Court, this commission, which was very fair, he wrote it, I think, as a supporter. He and the commission wrote it as supporters of the International Criminal Court. And Indeed, in terms of the actual mission of the court, I'm wholeheartedly behind that. But in terms of what they were doing in this instance, it was one among many indications that there was a great need for improvement and reform in the International Criminal Court. And so um, the Goldstone Commission came out during my ambassadorship, and uh, I think it was very trenchant, very fair, uh, but also had a way forward for the ICC to improve. During this time, the ICC judges were uh, trying to get pay raises uh, inside the inside the system, even though they were actually, they're actually pretty well paid. Um, And uh, you know, something that I think is important in general is to look at the reality of what is going on with the place and not just what it says it's supposed to be doing, not just its symbolic value by its existence, but to look at what it is actually doing And is it fulfilling the mission that is before it, or is it not? And so I ended up talking to a lot of leaders from a lot of countries in regards to this matter. Um, And uh, it, it it was a delicate sensitive matter. It's not that I was opposed per se to the ICC. It was not that. But it was that the ICC was engaged in uh, really, a misadventure here that uh, it should not have been engaging in that would actually diminish the overall mission of the pursuit of justice, which is what I was seeking from beginning uh, to the end of my time uh, in this office. Speaking of the uh, end of my time, I will uh, turn uh, as a final example before we, if we have time for questions, to uh, the one of the last days I was in the office. I had worked on the mass atrocity determinations against the Chinese Communist Party for literally most of my time that I was in the office, as well as concurrently working on many other things. And uh, on one of my final days in office, it finally got across the finish line, Uh, mass atrocity determinations for genocide and for crimes against humanity against Uyghurs and other Turkic minorities in Xinjiang province, China. We had ample evidence along those lines too. And frankly, most of the evidence is open source. You didn't even have to go classified, although we had that too. But even just with the open source uh, evidence that was out there, the mass atrocities that were happening in Xinjiang province were legion. Uh, They were extensive, they were highness, and never before had the U.S. made mass atrocity determinations against a country as powerful, as influential, as wealthy as China. Uh, And it was specifically against the Chinese Communist Party. It's not against the people of China. It's against the Chinese Communist Party. And, uh, And frankly, in the process of doing so, I was hit in more directions on that effort than maybe anything I've ever worked on ever in my life. Um, But I was glad to see it finally get across the finish line um, just before my time was up. Um, It has been part of and has increased, I think, a cascade of things that have happened, whether it's sanctions, uh, whether it's uh, the diplomatic boycott, that happened with a number of countries, with the Beijing Olympics, whether it was the uh, proposed formation of the Uyghur tribunal, a people's tribunal. um, There was a whole raft of things that have kind of emerged out from there. And indeed, the uh, current Secretary of State was going through his confirmation hearing during that time. And he was asked, would he continue and maintain these mass atrocity determinations? And he pledged that he would. And indeed he has. And so that has continued. And this has been part of a major shift in US policy vis-a-vis the Chinese Communist Party, which was a major focus. And this was one of the components in that overall effort that was happening to counter uh, the Chinese Communist Party's blind influence within their country, as well as abroad In another talk that, uh, at at another talk that I gave, uh, I made reference to the Chinese Communist Party's techno-totalitarianism. It's a neologism, it's a term I coined, but basically what I mean by that is a use of technology for totalitarian purposes. And they were doing that in Xinjiang, and they have been exporting that worldwide to help normalize such practices. And this is a major threat to human rights, uh, not only in China and not only in other parts of China, but uh, around the world as well. And so um, I hope that gives you a bit of a flavor of some of the things that I was involved in. It was my sincere intention and effort to try to increase and seek justice as much as possible from day one to my final day, um, that was my singular focus uh, throughout throughout my time uh, in office. And uh, hopefully I was able, together with the team that I had in the Office of Global Criminal Justice, hopefully we were and in the State Department and in the U.S. government, hopefully we were able to make the world a bit more just of a place uh, through our efforts. And with that, I'd be happy to take your questions if there's time for that.
0: And we have just under about 10 minutes for Q&A for the formal Q&A. So if you guys have any questions, I have a mic that I can bring around. Awesome.
2: All right, so i just
0: talk in just here. Okay. Hi, um, my name is Dacia. I don't go to this graduate school, but I live in the area. But I went to the Geneva Graduate Institute. And um, I think my question has to do with kind of this trend of with pursuing justice, it's very, you know, reactionary. We wait until after something bad happens. Um, but I wonder what you think about becoming, or if you see some trends in becoming a bit more preventative and some stuff, you know, because a lot of these mass atrocities, they don't happen overnight. It's kind of a trend of, you know, dehumanizing or really going after certain groups. I just wonder what you think about it becoming a bit more preventative and if it can become Preventative.
1: Yeah, I, I've been known for quoting that epigram, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. And I believe that, and I think it applies to many things, including this context. Uh, you know, I be, shortly before my time, I think after I was nominated, but before I was confirmed, I was at the Sudakov seminar on the prevention of genocide over at the U.S. Holocaust Museum. Um, and that was the subject that, uh, was being talked about is how can this be prevented? There was a book that was given away, uh, in conjunction with that conference, something that was very interesting. Um, and I did indicate to you some examples of times where I was intervening as things were unfolding and not just waiting until afterwards. Right. So I did try to do that, but The most interesting finding from that whole book and all these studies is that the number one way to prevent mass atrocity crimes is by providing just accountability after they occur. That may sound like a catch-22 in some ways, right? Because you don't want them to occur, but that actually, the research has found so far that that is the number one way to prevent them moving forward. So with that said, are there other factors? Are there other ways to prevent uh, these and to try to prevent these? Yes, I think there are. Um, And all that could be done uh, in that vein, um, the more that could be done in that vein, the better. I mean, for example, uh, one way to prevent war crimes is by uh, preventing the war, (laughs) right? If you're able to prevent the war, there won't be any war crimes because there wasn't there's not a war right so or if you can you interrupt a war, can you stop a war that's going on right that That's one way that you can try to um, prevent war crimes is by either preventing the war in the first place or stopping trying to stop a war that is going on right um and so in terms of all the factors that feed into what end up in mass atrocity crimes, I mean, I'll give the example of Rwanda. You have Belgian, uh, colonization that happened. You had the minority Tutsi set as overlords over the majority Hutu for decades. There is this rule through the Tutsi minority that created a big sense of being oppressed and mistreated by the Hutu majority. And there was there were decades of rage, if you will, that sort of built up before Rwanda exploded, right? So were there things before then that could have been done or that fed into what ended up happening? I think the answer is yes. Um, sometimes Uh, let me say this too. A lot of times when mass atrocity crimes are happening and let's say it's a wartime situation, it is often happening by all sides that are involved. That it's not just one side that is involved because there could be mass atrocities and sort of, if you will, counter mass atrocities, right? Or... Uh, vindictive mass mass atrocities that can occur as well. So um, at a very deep cultural level, uh, I remember hearing a Rwandan man speak at a conference who I think stunned us by talking about how he had forgiven those who had murdered his close family members and friends. And it was a profound testimony as after what he suffered that he was willing to forgive the perpetrators who had taken the lives of his closest family members and friends. And I think there's a certain answer there that may not be talked about much in the literature, but I think if that if the forgiveness that that person was able to live could be replicated across a culture, that I think is a very powerful, powerful thing that could perhaps help to prevent things. In the Balkans, in the former Yugoslavia, that's been going on for millennia, right? What's been going on over there, right? And, and it's always the other side's fault, the Serbians say it's the Bosnians and the Kosovars and Kosovars say it's the Serbians, and you know, it's, and they're all pointing at each other. And I think to the extent that there's an, to the extent that there's a willingness to own up to things that have been done, and from those who suffered it to forgive. I think that could be a profoundly healing thing that could lead to a depth of reconciliation potentially and peace that can maybe prevent these sorts of things from happening. So these are cultural strands, if you will, that I think could help, that could help prevent uh, these things from happening and s- both on the micro as well as the macro level. This is one of the reasons why there are truth and reconciliation commissions, right? because they're trying to help that process along of, on the one hand, true admission of guilt, but also, hopefully, forgiveness and reconciliation that happen, Um, And especially with the lower level perpetrators, that's when these sorts of commissions are more often used uh, because they don't typically carry the same level of penalties as legal processes, court processes often do but there is value there, too, in in giving a public lesson and a deterrence for such atrocities moving forward. And so uh, am I for truth and reconciliation commissions or courts? My answer is yes, all above, <laughs> is is what I'm in favor of. We so. have time for
0: one more question, at least for the formal one. But if you guys have questions for Ambassador Chan afterwards, I'm sure he'd love to answer.
2: I know you have. Oh, sure. Silver? Okay, sweet. Okay. Hi, I'm Holly. Um, I'm with Arizona State University um, with the policy design studio here. My question's more just like a specific, um, like your, like the job of an ambassador inside of an embassy. So you talked about Rwanda and how, um, you know, the United States uh, got involved in uh, capturing the, the, that was it a general or uh, the person that started it or whatnot, but at what point does the are you advocating to the United States government to get involved in other countries' uh, atrocities like that? Um, because as I'm aware, um, your role in the embassy is not only to protect the United States' interests, but you're also trying to harbor a uh, relationship with the host country. So how do you balance um, getting involved, first of all, and at what point is it where, you, yeah, you're like, trying to balance both relationships, I guess.
1: I I actually think addressing justice issues helps that country. And it helps that country to become its better self, if you will. Um, And so there are those who talk national interests or justice and human rights. Um, I would rather talk about them together. And I would say that it's in the interest of that country and our country to adhere to uh, justice and human rights Uh, would be more the way I would rather think about it. I know that they are often pitted against each other, um, but I view that as a false dichotomy. But having said that, can these be taken in a not so good way? Yeah, that happens too. Can there be certain, a certain wisdom in either the ordering or the timing of things or how things are kind of done together? I, th- I think so. Um, but to just say those things are utterly opposed to each other and, uh, and should not be in the same discussion or should not be considered together, um, I think the Helsinki process uh, belied that. And you had both human rights as well as uh, national security things moving forward together concurrently. Uh, that was going on in relation to uh, negotiations with North Korea as well, where both were being talked about. And so, um, so I, I'm of the view that it can be an all the above. But the ordering, the prioritization, the balancing, to a certain extent, the timing, the how... All those things can make a difference, uh, but I wouldn't simply pit them against each other. Uh, Although I've heard that view, um, there's no lack of times I've heard that view. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, that concludes our formal part of the Q&A, so let's give another round of applause to Ambassador (laughs) Chan.